Sarah Gonsalves, and welcome back to another edition of the Wellness Academy podcast, where we unravel the interconnectivity of nutrition, physiology, and well-being. Today, we have Sarah Wells, who's a 400-meter Olympic hurdler. She's a four-time winner of the Canadian National Championship. She's a silver medal winner from the Pan Am Games an amazing race superstar, and she's now founded the Believe Initiative. Welcome, Sarah, to the podcast. Thank you so much. Lovely to meet another person with a great name. <laughs> I call it the I call it the Sarah Boom. Anyone who was born eighty five to ninety five, there's a lot of us. <laughs> no, it's the least creative name of all time, but. <laughs> So I really, I do want to talk about your career as a hurdler, but I'm really interested as well to hear about the Believe Initiative, which is an incredibly remarkable organization that you've been able to found. Yeah, the Believe Initiative came out through my experience in sport where I wanted the Olympic dream because I wasn't good at any other sport. I got cut from every team in high school. Then I found track and field and was like, okay, maybe I could make the Olympics one day. And right before I ended up tearing my hamstring. I did everything I could to rush back in those eight weeks I had leading into the Olympic trials. I knew my hamstring wasn't at 100%, but I stood on that start line and I didn't let my circumstances define my outcome. I went for it anyways. And as a four-time national champion, I thought, well, it's okay. All I need to do is get on the podium and I'll make the Olympics. And I don't need to be at my best. I just need to get top three. And so I gave it everything I had and I ended up falling short by less than half a second. And so I watched this Olympic dream of like becoming an Olympic medalist just evaporate in front of my eyes. And in that moment, I was like, wait, no, like this can't be happening. Four years ago, I believed in myself. I overcame the obstacles and I I achieved my goal. And that's what I had been telling people on stages as a keynote speaker for four years. If you believe in yourself, you will achieve your goals. And now four years later, I just believed in myself. I stood on that start line. I went for it and I did not achieve my goal. And when I took some time away from the track. I realized that I actually believed in myself more strongly after not making the Olympics, even more so than when I did, because I didn't let my circumstances define my outcome. I stood on that start line, went for it anyways. And that showed me a strength inside that I didn't know that I had. And then when I started telling the story about the two different Olympic quads, people would tell me they were more inspired by the time that I didn't make the Olympics over the time where I did. And so that really helped me triangulate. Well, if I believe in myself more strongly after not making the Olympics and people are more inspired by the time where I did not make the Olympics, well, then clearly you don't build self-belief and become inspirational through achievements. You build self-belief and become inspirational through actions. And that's when I founded the Believe Initiative to help people become inspiring and build self-belief through action. And so we now have worked with schools and organizations in helping people take their distinguished strengths and unique passions and help solve some type of community or business need. And then they use that passion to help solve that need. And they ultimately build self-belief and inspiration through action. And so, you know, this has taken on many different forms in the last few years. And people always ask me, you know, do you regret tearing your hamstring right before the Rio Olympics? Like, 
you could have won a medal. Like, what do you think? And sure. I absolutely wish like, well, what could have happened? Who could I have been? Like, what would I have achieved? But I would have never had the life and what I am doing right now had that not have happened. And so I'm forever grateful because it led me to the Believe Initiative and what I'm doing now. And, you know, it's it's crazy because when I first heard your story, I went, oh, my gosh, she still went and ran after her injury. I would have been decimated thinking I wasn't going to be able to do it. And you sat there and it's a completely different perspective. You only came half a second from that top. And I think it's unbelievable that you go and you teach that Olympic mindset to others. You work a lot with students. Is there something in particular that you feel like working with youth youth is special or is there something that inspired you to do that specifically? Initially, I started working with youth because after my very first experience of overcoming the injury and then making it to the Olympic Games, um, my parents started to share my story. And I actually got the word believe tattooed onto my wrist. And my parents were like, then she got this tattoo and we were so mad at her, but then it really worked and she believed in herself and then she made the Olympic Games. And so because my parents were telling that story, my parents' friends started inviting me to speak at their kids' schools. Then once I did one school, well, then they referred me to another school and another school. And it was a a really eye-opening experience to me to come to learn that our personal stories can inspire other people in their own way and get them into action. And so when I learned that that was something I could do, I was like, oh my gosh, how do I do more of this? Once I started doing schools, well, then I realized like, well, this isn't just relevant to students. There are corporations and, and leaders because we all have that voice in our heads and moments we feel defeated and deflated. And so started getting opportunities to speak on big conference stages of 3,000 person company kickoff. I just get so much energy from an audience. I can see the message like landing, you know, I can just like almost like feel it hit them in a way that that opens their eyes and, and their minds to what's possible. And that really, really excites me. And so students, you know, were really my stepping stone. <laughs> but now having worked with corporate audiences, they're not the easy audience. I've now come to know that they're actually the much harder audience because they don't care to slouch in their chair and cross their arms and be like, what do you got to say, lady? Like, <laughs> I don't care about you. They're tough cookies, but they've, they've helped me become a better leader. And they've helped me learn more about how I can make my message effective and, and kind of tailor to different kind of mindsets and make sure it's not what people might label as fluffy and kind of <laughs> intangible. I'm not telling you to walk into a room and say, I've got this. I'm telling you to be brave enough to have a goal so big that people think you're crazy for having it. Then know that it's going to be a hard road, yet have the grit to go for it anyways. And then when obstacles do start arising, you have the willingness to be resilient and get back up and overcome every single obstacle because you know if you keep getting back up, if anyone can do this, it's you. It's crazy because I think even as an adult, you've trained your mindset in such a way and it probably gets to a point where you need to hear that information. You need to sit down and have someone reiterate, but learn the relearn and learn how to believe in yourself. Yeah. I was reading your response in the Canadian Running Magazine and the article is addressing retiring from being an athlete. How is the next chapter of your life different for you than some athletes? I was really fortunate to learn so many things within sport um, and then have mentors, whether that was my coach or I met a really amazing mentor. Uh, his name is Mike Beckerman. And he really taught me like, hey, you need to prepare for life after sport. And so what are you doing now that you think could be relevant or useful in the future? And because I had had some experience in getting to do student speeches, I was on these stages. And then when this mentor of mine, Mike, who I met was like, when you're doing these speeches, 
Are you leaving resources behind? Do you hope to, do you ask for referrals? Like, what are you building towards? How many events do you want to do a year? I was like, oh, oh, is that something I should be thinking about? (laughs) You know, through him kind of giving me that guidance, I was able to actually say like, oh, okay. So I actually should think more about what are the lessons I've learned in sport? How can I apply those? And then get on stages and practice early on. How do I deliver that message? How do I make it resonate with an audience member? How do I tie it back to something that's non-sport related so that it does make sense for their lives? And then the more I had to do that, you know, seemingly for them to be able to teach the lessons for them, well, then that suddenly helped me realize like, oh, like I, I learned that skill and this is how this could be helpful in the future in my career going forward. I think that's an excellent mindset. And then I, you bring up a really great point in terms of mentorship and having someone there to sort of guide you. I think that's really important in, in anyone's life. Now, hurdling is an incredibly physically challenging sport. For 400 meter hurdles, you require a large amount of endurance. Not only that, but speed, explosive strength, a lot of positive pacing, and then focus. And I found especially when you're watching it, you can see there's a lot of coordination. There seems to be a huge strategy that includes being able to time it properly with your pacing and strides to overcome the hurdle. But also additionally, that spatial recognition to understand how high you need to go. So with all of those things going on, how do you manage all those different inputs um, and then perform at such a high level and and walk us through what's going on in your mind during a race? I think that there's a lot less going on in my mind during a race as there is in the 7 million practices you've done leading into that. Because in a race, you really want your mindset to be quite focused on like a single task. And there's a lesson that I speak to in one of my leadership development training courses where I talk about the hurdle one technique. And where this came from was an experience that I had at the Pan American Games where I actually won that silver medal that I spoke to earlier. And At the Pan American Games, I was favored to win a medal. And in the qualifying rounds, it happened to be really, really windy. And so the same way that you have a favorite leg to kick a soccer ball, I have a favorite leg to jump over the hurdle with. I still hurdle with both lead legs over the hurdle, but I have a favorite one because I have one that I can depend on that's stronger, much like people have when they kick a soccer ball. And the 400 hurdles is one big lap around the track. And at the beginning of the race you're usually quite elastic. Like your muscles don't have lactic acid in them. So they're more elastic. Your stride length is longer. You have more power to your step. So you can get, you know, two inches further on every stride. So my coach and I, we have a race plan, but at this Pan American Games, it's really windy. And when the wind pushes you back, you're off your race plan because your stride length might not get as far. So if I get my good leg at hurdle 10 or at hurdle one, that means I get my bad leg at hurdle 10, the final hurdle when I need to be my strongest. So I don't want my bad leg at the end. So is the wind going to be as strong? Like, should we change the race plan? Should we switch everything? Because, you know, I can't get my bad leg in the final hurdle again. He's like, no, no, Sarah, like the race isn't going to be, it's not going to be as windy during race time. Don't worry, stick to the plan. Like we practice this over and over again. You don't want to have a million things going in your brain. You just want to focus in on the race plan. We've practiced a zillion times. So I was like, okay, And so, of course, you may have seen this in Olympics and stuff. The starter lets everyone do a quick, like running out of the starting blocks before they call you back and you start the official race. So when I did my quick starting block run out, the wind was so strong again that I was like, no, 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 it's going to happen again. (laughs) And so I was so nervous. And 
I start looking into the stands to find my coach amongst 20,000 people. Absurd thought. But I was like, I just wanted to be like, I'm going to switch my starting blocks. Like, just like nod your head. Please tell me this is a good idea. And you couldn't see him, but he was probably like, don't think anything else. (laughs) Stick to the plan. So I can't find him, luckily. So I'm like, I'm going to do it. So I pick my starting block and I switch which foot goes forward. So that way, if the wind knocks me back, I can account for that extra step. So I switch everything the opposite direction that I normally go. And as I've just mentioned, you're trying, normally you want to just lock in on what body momentum, like your muscle memory, you don't want to think about anything. So I now have to override that pattern. And I'm just thinking left leg, left leg, left leg, like, please, please pick up my appropriate leg. And gun goes off. I run at hurdle one and I'm almost like wincing because I'm like, what's going to happen? And I leap up. And I get my bad leg, which is what I wanted, which set me up for the rest of the race. And I end up getting my good leg in the final hurdle. And I end up winning a silver medal. And all of this is to say that the thing I think we do often in, in life and so much of, of how we can get caught up and overwhelmed by like, there's so many competing priorities. and I have a million things and things I'm trying to accomplish and who I want to be. And I want to be a great friend, but I want to be a great employee, but I want to be a great mom, but I want to beat all these things. And so we can get so bogged down on these, all these details where we get, forget to focus on like, but what's hurdle one? Like we don't need to be all things at all times because it didn't matter what happened at hurdle seven, eight, nine for me. All I needed to do is think left leg, left leg, left leg and get over just hurdle one. The original sports trials before the hurdles didn't go so well, but you did show up and you did try out. Were there any signs as a kid that you would be a good athlete? So this is kind of interesting because I I didn't really choose hurdling or like, like, yeah, this is my sport. I wanted to be good at literally anything else. Like I had tried out for basketball, volleyball, soccer, field hockey, badminton, everything in the ninth grade. And (laughs) I got cut from every team. And so almost the entire first year had gone by and I hadn't made a sports team yet. So I was like, oh, okay, I guess I'm not athletic. And in the springtime, my gym teacher saw me run up to the soccer ball, get there, do nothing with it, and then accelerate <laughs> away again. And he was like, Sarah, you should come out for the track team. I want to teach you how to hurdle. And I was like, man, you don't want me on your team. Like, I've already got cut from every team at this school. And he's like, no, 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 I think you could be good. And that high school teacher and I ended up starting to train together. And we stayed together as coach and athlete for the next nine years until we made the Olympics. But at no point did I ever realize that like, for like, oh, I want to be a track athlete one day. It was almost just like, thanks to his guidance, his belief in me. And he's another part of the Believe Initiative story of like, he believed in me before I ever believed in myself. And not everyone gets to have that person in their life. And so I was so fortunate to have him stay so committed and and never let me lose faith in the fact that like, this could be possible for me making the Olympics one day. You know, I hope for everyone, they don't have that kind of coach in their life that the Believe Initiative can be that person for as many people as possible. Absolutely. And and belief is in other people is such a powerful thing as well. I know there's been times as well where I've even someone has told me, you know, you can't do that. And that can almost be a motivating factor as well, I think, and saying, well, maybe I maybe I can do that. And so sometimes it works both ways, which I think is fascinating. Are there I know you mentioned you got rejected from a lot of team sports, like, but are there any sports now that you play like other than, yeah, I don't know if you still get on the track every once in a while and, and run some hurdles, but it, what are you participating in these days? 
So hurdles are hard to find. So I definitely don't just randomly <laughs> jump any hurdles yet, but um, right. I do jump over chains while going for jogs when you have those like, you know, those long droopy chains. Yes. I'm always like, oh, I can get that. Let me hurdle that. Um, but, um, <laughs> in terms of, I just retired in 2020. So I, I'm fresh into retirement and really being a full-time regular normal person. And <laughs> I, for, you know, over six months, I literally didn't do anything. I just wanted to sit around and have a normal life. And when someone asked me like, oh, can you do this this weekend? I could be like, yes, <laughs> I totally can. And so I think really leaning into doing nothing was a big part of the first part of my retirement plan. And now, now I just kind of pick up random challenges. Like I did something called the 75 hard challenge. If you've ever heard of that. It's 75 days straight of you do two workouts a day that have to be 45 minutes in length. Um, you have mm-hmm. to drink a gallon of water. You can do no cheat meals that you define what cheat meals are. You can do no alcohol. You have to read 10 pages of a book. I think that's it. But anyways, you do it for 75 days straight. And so I did that challenge last year and like, was like, oh, that'll be interesting to try. And then, you know, I started following a half marathon training program and just ran for, you know, whatever the program told me to do. Like I haven't really gotten into anything very seriously yet. Um, and I think that's just naturally because I'm so fresh into retirement, but I enjoyed the challenge of things. And that's why I do pick these like random, <laughs> like, I don't know, what will I want to do now? <laughs> yeah. Cause a 75 day challenge is no easy feat. Like that's a big challenge, but I guess, you know, and in, in terms of in perspective, if you put that into the, like, you know, accomplishing and closing those gaps to get into the Olympics to doing just a 75 day challenge, it's probably you know, still a big challenge, but maybe, you know, perspective. It's not four years. Yeah. Yes. It's not four years. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> So you mentioned a little bit, you know, in, in terms of your nutrition and supplementation. So when you were practicing, was there anything that you specifically did in terms of your nutritional habits? Yeah, there was, I was like, of course, really lucky to have an amazing support system around me. So I, I worked with a nutritionist and we had a biomechanist that we leaned on for kind of like the science behind stuff. I had a naturopath. And so I was looking for 0.001 second improvement. So right. literally anything could help. And so I was doing stuff like I would do vitamin IVs. Um, I had, because of my injury, I had a stress fracture and my femur was the year before my, my London Olympic experience, but I had to believe in myself and overcome that injury. You know, it was a stress fracture. And so I had a lot of nutrition around D3 and calcium magnesium and ensuring that those were really, really up there. I also, as a runner, we end up having really low iron. And so I was doing iron infusions and making sure that those were really, really high. So and taking supplements in order to like hold on to as much of my iron infusion as possible before it like went back to the floor again. It's integral, I think, to optimize that cellular health from every level you possibly can in order to be achieving your highest level. And so, yeah, I was, I was taking multivitamins and I was taking protein supplements and um, making sure, you know, we use something called beta alanine, which helps you actually buffer lactic. And so uh, it makes you very tingly. It's a very interesting experience. But, um, <laughs> Definitely is. <it's>, yeah. <laughs> it was an art to make sure you can be the absolute best version of yourself. And so we we use supplements all the time. No, and it's it's good to hear that actually that you were doing a lot of D3, magnesium, calcium during that, you know, injury time. And it probably will help like long-term as well. I've, I've read some studies that show like support in terms of getting as much bone mass as possible during that, you know, during your athletic career will probably, you know, help you in your sixties and seventies and eighties. So I think that's a great, 
way to focus on your supplementation at that time. And then iron supplementation, I actually did not know that. So that's actually, you know, remarkable that they were trying to keep those levels up as well. Um, That's fabulous. And was there a transition point when you realize, I guess you were mentioning as well in terms of your iron load that you had to consume a lot more energy as well to sort of keep up with your physical demands? And was that was that challenging? Because going from, you know, eating 2000 calories to probably even like close to 3000 or 4000, I'm not sure if you were consuming up to that kind of quantities, but was that a big change for you? You build a foundation kind of the first three months of training, then you're doing speed and foundation work, which is the, like you throw up pretty much every practice because you're in such misery and like you push your body to the extent. And then you do three months of mostly speed. And then you have kind of like three months of, of racing. And so, and you're just like one and done those first six months, those kind of foundational layer and the foundation plus speed, you are, you can't consume enough. Like you're doing so many miles. You're also doing those miles fast, but you're doing, you know, three or 4k of intervals at a high speed. And so you are crushing calories. And so mm-hmm. I remember my nutritionist putting together a plan. It was like, eat breakfast. Then like an hour later, eat a bowl of oatmeal. It's like, what? I just ate like a <laughs> thousand calorie breakfast. Now I need to eat a whole bowl of oatmeal. Like the last thing I can think about is eating right now. And when you're running so much and they're like, oh, well, don't go two hours without eating anything. You're like, but I have a four hour practice. Like when am I consuming a 1400 calorie meal between then? And so, um, Definitely days we had to make sure, especially knowing my bone history of getting some stress fractures, we had to prioritize caloric intake to make sure that I wasn't going to get another stress fracture. Unfortunately, I got three more, but um, I think that more had to do with it was always showed up back in the exact same spot. So I think my bone wasn't healing fully and then I would stress fracture because it was engineered wrong when it rebuilt itself. Yeah. So calories were very important to me and mapping that out with my nutritionist was sometimes a challenge because you just don't want to eat anymore. It became like a chore. Well, and a lot of athletes don't realize they need to eat more. And so it's good that, you know, you did work with a nutritionist at that time to sort of push you to eat the extra because you did need it because you probably actually would have continued to undergo even more fractures. So it's good that you were not forced, but that you were suggested to eat a lot more. What does health and wellness mean to you? It's really about being fulfilled by what you're pursuing. And that can come in the form of work. Like health and wellness doesn't have to be only in nutrition and running and whatever, but it can be simply being so invigorated and like enthused by what you do for work and having conversations with people or how interesting it was to meet that person at that airport and be like, wow, they have a really cool story. Like life is cool. Like the way you encounter individuals is awesome. Like that's wellness. Like that's, that's appreciation. That's gratitude. And I think all of that is health and wellness. And so I really try my best sometimes to not get so caught up in the pursuit of excellence that it detracts from enjoyment of feeling just like healthy and happy and like, well, is I guess the word I would use into that (laughs) to tie it back to what we're talking about. But we know from science and research that often we can manufacture that feeling good when we move our bodies and fuel it appropriately. And so um, it can come in many forms, but it's not the only form it can come in in that way. And so be happy at work, have balance, fuel yourself appropriately, and you can manufacture that that feeling of of like, yeah, life's good. <laughs> Thank you so much for joining us, Sarah, and sharing your journey with us. 
Your drive and passion to get you and your community to the finish line are beyond remarkable. For our audience, I encourage you to learn more at thebeliefinitiative.com and how you can get yourself and your team over the first hurdle and set yourself up for success. On our next episode, please join us in hearing what former founder and CEO of Manitoba Harvest has to say about the health and wellness industry. Please note that the content of the podcast should not be taken as medical, legal, or financial advice. If you liked where this was going and want to listen to more, hit subscribe or learn more about the Wellness Academy, access to our white papers, consumer insights, and more. Please visit our homepage at discover.universesolutions.com and use the search bar in the top left to search for the Wellness Academy or follow us on our LinkedIn page at Universe Solutions Nutraceuticals. Thank you for listening and join us next time. Wellness Academy is part of the Univar Solutions Podcast Network.